All right, while our kids are kind of uh, funneling out here, uh, you can turn to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Uh, We're going to pick up this morning right where uh, Byron left off last week uh, with the Church of Philadelphia today. All right, and if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 it says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for the encouragement, for the reproof, for the instruction that it gives us. And God, I just pray that this message this morning draws us near to you, that it uh, shows us the gospel, that it shows us the hope that we have as believers, and that you would just use it to uh, transform our hearts this morning and uh, just simply to draw us to you and to exalt your name. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Uh, So Philadelphia is located uh, between Sardis, which is last week's church, and uh, Laodicea, which is next week's church. And if you've looked at uh, a map of Asia Minor, you can see that uh, John has been working his way through Asia Minor um, in a clockwise circle pattern. Uh, so he, he started with Ephesus, and then he went from Ephesus northwest uh, to, <clears throat> uh, to Smyrna. And then he went straight north to Pergamum, then he went east to Thyatira, south to Sardis, southeast to Philadelphia, and then next week he'll move uh, southeast again to Laodicea. So he's working his way through Asia Minor in kind of this clockwise, uh, odd-looking circle as he's addressing these churches. And Philadelphia is, so Philadelphia is located between uh, Sardis and Laodicea, and it was a very wealthy trading center. It was stationed on a, uh, positioned on a very well-used trading route. And so the city of Philadelphia was wealthy. Uh, It was large. It had uh, quite a bit of influence and uh, actually had the city of Philadelphia itself had a lot of influence all the way up until about the year uh, 1000. And uh, the the battle between the different empires and things kind of uh, caused it to go to the wayside. But it was a very wealthy, very influential trading center for a very long time. And the church there, um, the the church at Philadelphia is one of two churches, the other being Smyrna, that were not rebuked for anything. Uh, Jesus has only good things to say about these churches. 
And not only do these two churches share in a lack of rebuke from Christ, but they also share in their opposition, which is referred to as the synagogue of Satan. And we'll get into that more in a moment. But along with their similarities, there's some interesting variations between the two churches as well. Smyrna was impoverished. They were very uh, poor. They were struggling that way. And Philadelphia was most likely a pretty wealthy congregation because the city of Philadelphia itself was very wealthy. There's nothing mentioned about the church being impoverished or the church being different in that aspect from the city that they were in. So it was most, most likely a wealthy congregation compared to the impoverished con- uh, congregation of Smyrna. And also, uh, the other difference is that Smyrna was told that a trial was coming. It was going to be a very intense, very brutal persecution coming for the church in Smyrna. But Philadelphia is told that they'll be exempt from the coming trial because they've already endured. And so when we look at these similarities and the differences, I think there's a really an important principle to take away from the comparison of these two churches. And that is, we can't always use outward circumstances to gauge the spiritual health of a church or of an individual, for that matter. Both of these churches were pleasing to Christ. Uh, Neither one of them rebuked for anything. Jesus deeply loved both of these churches. He uh, commended them very highly. But one was about to be brutally persecuted, and the other one was going to be spared the coming trial. And so I think today when we look at that, we would be very tempted if we see two churches, one is experiencing a lot of hardship, um, a lot of just bad things are happening to that church. And then we see another church that is just really booming. There's a lot of people there. Everything seems to just be going right for that church. I think today we would look at that and we would be tempted to say, well, I wonder what Smyrna is doing wrong that Philadelphia is doing Right. I wonder what the difference is there. Well, we see here there is no difference as far as the health of the churches. Jesus commends both of them. There are a lot of outwardly prosperous churches that are spiritually dead, such as Sardis from last week. And there are a lot of churches that are struggling, but are spiritually striving, such as Smyrna. So the outward appearance or the apparent success of a church is not always a trustworthy barometer of the well-being of a church. And we saw that very clearly last week with Byron's message uh, in that the church looked healthy, it had a great reputation, but it was dead spiritually. The gospel was nowhere to be found and there was no life spiritually. So we have to understand that the health of a church is not defined by having money in the bank, it's not defined by high attendance, and it's not even defined by having a lot of service projects. We need to be sure that we are evaluating ourselves by the correct standard as a church. We need to ask ourselves, what kind of gospel impact are we having on the lives of the people in our community? Not how many people we're helping physically, that's important, that shouldn't be separated from sharing the gospel, but that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is impacting people for the gospel. 
showing Christ to our community, seeing people uh, receive Christ, receive the gospel, have the gospel proclaimed in our community. That is our goal, seeing people within this church grow spiritually, seeing families mature and grow in the gospel and see individuals being transformed into the image of Christ. Those are the goals that we have as a church. And so the outward appearance this apparent success that we just churches by a lot today is not always or ever a good way to judge the health of the church. Like Byron said last week, his fear was of us becoming Sardis, a church that uh, was known to be living but was actually dead. And I think that's something that we always have to be on guard for. We can't just assume that uh, if, if our Sunday morning numbers are growing if we have money in the bank or whatever we can't assume those things are make us a good church we can't assume that that means that the church is healthy we have to constantly evaluate ourselves as a church and as individuals and examine our spiritual health by what scripture gives us not what the world tells us is success and so those are the the similarities and the differences between Smyrna and Philadelphia let's really get into this church in Philadelphia now. Look at verse 7 and then the first half of verse 8. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. So he's referring to, he's, he's describing Christ in this. Okay, saying these are the words of the Holy One, the True One, but then he refers to Christ as the, the, the one who holds the key of David. Christ has the key of David. And then he says that anything he opens stays open. And he tells Philadelphia that the door has been opened and no one can shut it because Christ is the one that opened it. Now, this imagery is being drawn from Isaiah chapter 22. In Isaiah chapter 22, verse 15 we see uh, a story of the keeper of David's house. So in Isaiah 22, beginning in verse 15, it says, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here, and whom have you here, that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. So what's happening here is Shebna is this guy who has been placed in charge of David's household. So kings during this time period, they didn't govern their own household. They, they delegated that to someone else. Okay, you can think of uh, Joseph from Genesis, how Pharaoh made Joseph basically in, in charge of everything in Egypt, kings didn't spend a lot of time doing the day-to-day management of their households or their possessions or things like that. They would hire that done. And so 
um, it says that Shebna was in the position of managing this household of David, managing this household of the king. But Shebna was a very wicked man and, and was really an illegitimate holder of that position. And his only goal in life was to have this really awesome tomb built for himself for when he died. I don't know why that was his goal. That seems kind of creepy to me. That's, that's all you think about. But that was his goal. His life, he spent his entire life. I'm going to pour all my money into having this really cool stone room for my dead body. <clears throat> but that's Shebna. And then in verse 17, it says, Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently. He's speaking to Shebna here. Oh, you strong man, he will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will, blind, I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. So what we see here is Shebna, this very wicked ruler, of the house of David, illegitimate ruler of the house of David who thinks only about himself and what he wants out of life is going to be hurled out of the kingdom. So th this tomb that he has spent his life building, he's not even gonna be able to use because God's gonna throw him so far away from the kingdom that when he dies, he's not gonna be able to be buried in that tomb that he prepared for himself. And in his place will be a righteous and just keeper of the house, the righteous and just holder of the key of David named Eliakim. And what he shuts stays shut and what he opens stays opened. And what we see here is this is actually a type of Satan and Christ. The Old Testament often, use, often uses what's called types. And so these are people or characters in the Old Testament from, from the history of Israel that are used to foreshadow Christ. Most often when we see a type, it is a type of Christ. For instance, Adam is a type of Christ as he's the representative of humanity. And now Jesus is the head of his church as Adam was the head of humanity. And so here we actually have a type of not only Christ, but Satan also with Shebna and Eliakim. Shebna represents Satan. Prior to Christ's death and resurrection, Satan was set free to deceive the nations and he ruled the world in cruelty and wickedness the same way that Shebna ruled the house of David. But on the day of Pentecost, Satan, uh, Satan was cast out as Shebna was and he would no longer be able to deceive the nations. We see this described in Revelation chapter 20, which we'll be at in a few you know, several weeks, but in Revelation chapter 20, verse one, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the t thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released 
for a little while. So what has happened when Jesus arose from that tomb, he arose victorious, he arose the true and better Eliakim, and Shebna, the Shebna of this world, Satan was cast out to no longer deceive the nations. Christ is on his throne now, ruling over his creation. And what he opens stays open, and what he shuts stays shut. But that's not all. There's another passage where there's similar language to this mentioned in Matthew chapter 16. We see some language that's very, very similar to this. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Listen to this part. It's gonna sound familiar. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So as we read this passage, first of all, we need to make clear, this, this is not the institution of the papacy. Jesus is not giving Peter a special position or special authority. Peter is not the, the foundation that the church is built on. Instead, Jesus is commending him for his confession of himself as the Messiah. Peter confesses that he agrees that Jesus is the Messiah that has been sent by God. And Jesus says it is on that confession and on that message of the gospel that my church is founded. The gospel is the rock that the church is founded on. And so when Jesus is speaking to Peter here, he's speaking to the church as a whole. Anyone who confesses Jesus as the Messiah, anyone who repents and trusts in Christ as their Savior, has this same message spoken to them. And so he tells Peter and to the church as a whole, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's the same language that describes Christ in Revelation as the holder of the key of David. So here's what's happening here. Jesus is dispensing his authority to the church. Jesus works through his church to advance his kingdom in the world. He's giving us that authority to rule and reign and to, uh, to advance in the world and the culture. See, look at this. When it says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, gates are defensive weapons. There's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of eschatology today that teaches us that as Christians, we're really supposed to just kind of hunker down and wait for Jesus to come back. And we can trust in him because the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Well, gates are defensive weapons. Jesus is implying that we're the ones advancing and hell cannot stop our advance. We're not supposed to be hunkered down just waiting for Jesus to come back. We're supposed to be in the culture, in the world, advancing his kingdom. 
We're supposed to be winning the culture and the world for Jesus. We're not, we're not supposed to just create a bubble and hang out in it until Jesus comes back. We're on the offensive. We're not on the defensive. And so we trust in the holder of the key of David and we battle, we fight to win the culture, we fight to advance God's kingdom in this world. And while doing so, while we fight to win the culture and the world for Christ, it's important to remember that as we're fighting, we only answer to the one who gave us the keys. We don't wait for the culture or even the government to give us the okay to carry out our mission as Christ's church. We are supposed to submit to the government as long as it doesn't contradict God's word, but when it comes to advancing his kingdom and carrying out his responsi uh, the responsibilities as the body of believers, we answer to no one except for Christ. There's a pastor named James Coates that Byron mentioned uh, last week. He's in Alberta, Canada, sitting in a medium security prison cell awaiting his trial that probably won't be until June. He's had very limited contact with his family. Uh, he's virtually been cut off uh, from, from pretty much everyone as he sits and awaits his trial. And he's there because he chose to open his church up in defiance of government restrictions and allow his church members to come worship and, and listen to him preach the gospel. And I'm ashamed to say that there are church leaders, even conservative church leaders, and even Southern Baptist church leaders that are either unconcerned or openly critical about his decision to, to defy the government and allow his church members to come worship and have a weekly assembly. And the truth is we're very blessed with where we live because uh, we, we have never at any time been forced to close down as a church. We voluntarily shut down because there was a real health threat that we didn't know much about. And so out of an abundance of caution, we took several weeks off, but we're fortunate because we, we've never had any government mandates for us to shut down like John MacArthur experienced in California. That being said, the reaction to the reaction of a lot of Christians when they hear stories about guys like James Coates and John MacArthur kind of frightens me because uh, most American Christians really don't know what persecution is but the culture's rapidly changing and I'm afraid that at some point we might. And the truth is we have a lot of weak Christians and we have a lot of weak pastors who I don't think will be able to stand up to it. So we, what we need as this culture is shifting and, and, and as we're losing this, uh, this culture that really bows down to religion like it has the past 50 or 60 years, as we lose that, we need Christians that are willing to stand against the culture and possibly even the government if they oppose the gospel. And we need Christians that have the faith to face real persecution and say, I serve God rather than men. And that's what the church at Philadelphia did. They stood in the face of persecution and they would not deny Christ. They would not deny his message. They would not compromise and so they were blessed by that. The second half of verse 8 
tells us that I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So the door was open for them. Christ opened the door for this church because he knew they were faithful even though they had little power or little strength. And it's interesting because we're not really told the source of their little strength. So it said that you have little power. So what does that mean? Like in what way do they have little power? Does it mean that they were impoverished? Well, no, not really because Philadelphia is a very wealthy city. There's nothing that's said about them being impoverished. So it's probably not that. It's probably not that they were, uh, maybe it's they had a small congregation within this big city. Uh, We're not really sure. The most likely answer is they've experienced a great deal of of persecution up to this point. And so mentally and emotionally and spiritually and maybe even physically, they're just exhausted from this persecution. But we're not really told what the source of their lack of strength is. And that might be on purpose. If you look at 2 Corinthians 12, you don't have to turn there, but that's the passage in which Paul says that he's been given this thorn in the flesh. And he's not, the thorn, the exact nature of the thorn is never, uh, is never given. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was, but Paul says that he had this thorn in the flesh. He asked God to remove it three times. And each time God says, my grace is sufficient for you. And I think it's very important and a lot of scholars say that the reason the nature of that thorn was never given was because if it was, it would, somewhat, it would take away from Jesus saying, my grace is sufficient for you. Because the whole point of that passage is it doesn't matter what the, Paul's thorn was, Christ and his grace are sufficient for us, no matter what the thorn is. And so I think the same principle applies here. The reason we're not given, you know, the the exact circumstance and we don't fully understand why it's said that Philadelphia has little power is because a lot of churches have little power for various reasons, whether it's financially, whether it's, uh, whether it's because they have small congregations or, or whatever. There's a lot of times we can feel like we're in a church that has little strength and little power, but the point is, no matter what the reason is for feeling like you have little strength, we all have the same holder of the key of David and he opens the door for his church. You see at FBC Spearman, we may think that we have little power because of our location. We're a little isolated here. And we may be tempted to think that we can't have much of an impact on the culture since we're so isolated, but that's simply not true. See, there's 3,300 people in Spearman, Texas, and on any given Sunday, there are about maybe five to 600 people in church. That leaves about 2,700 people that aren't reached. So there's plenty of opportunity for us to have a massive impact for the gospel. We've got almost 3,000 people right here that we could be reaching. We, we have an opportunity for a massive impact for the gospel and we have the key of David that has opened the door. The question is, will we be faithful with the power and the strength and the resources and the influence that God gives us? Because in Luke 16.10, Jesus tells us that he who is faithful with little will be faithful with much. 
And I think it's important to ask ourselves as a church, are we worthy of having a bigger impact as a church? Are we worthy of Jesus opening the door for us as he opened it for the church at Philadelphia? Are we faithful? Are we standing firm? Are we serving the key of the holder of David rightly to make him want to open the door for us? I think that's an important question to ask ourselves. So he moves on to verse 9, and this is where uh, a familiar enemy comes up. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. I'm sorry, chapter 2. And verse 9. It says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So just like the church at Smyrna, Philadelphia had to deal with the synagogue of Satan. And the synagogue of Satan is referring to Jews within Philadelphia and Smyrna that have rejected the gospel and have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And John tells us that they'll be made, made to bow down before the church. And this brings up a really important uh, theological doctrine that will be discussed more and more as we go throughout this book. But when John says that these people are Jews but they're lying, he's not saying that they're lying about their ethnicity. Okay? Um, you know, he's not saying that all oh, these people say they're Jews but they're clearly from Asia. That's not what he's saying. He's not disputing their ethnicity, what he's saying is they're ethnically Jewish, but they're not spiritually Jewish. You see, there's an ethnic Israel, but there's also a spiritual or true Israel. And John is calling these people at the synagogue of Satan, he's saying, yeah, you're ethnically Jewish, you have the right pedigree, but your heart's not Jewish. You're not a true Israelite. See, the purpose of the nation of Israel was to pave a way for the Messiah, to set a stage for his earthly ministry, and to be a physical representation of God's spiritual people. However, along the way, they consistently rebelled against God. They, they, the Old Testament describes them as playing the harlot. And they eventually killed the Messiah that God was using them to bring forth. And we see this in Romans chapter 9. Paul is actually lamenting the falling away of, of his ethnic people. In Romans chapter 9, verse 1, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself was accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. So what Paul's saying there is, he's, first of all, he's lamenting 
the falling away of his brethren, of his fellow Jews, because he knows that the nation of Israel is going to be punished because they've rejected the Messiah, the very nation that God was using, that God formed for the purpose to serve him and to bring about his Messiah, instead rejected him and killed the Messiah. And they were going to be held responsible for that. We see Jesus uh, lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem before his crucifixion. And that's because God was going to punish the nation of Israel for their rejection of him. Uh, to paraphrase Doug Wilson in, in his commentary on Revelation, he says that the, the book of Revelation is a description of God divorcing the harlot Israel, giving her over to the beast that she rode and redeeming the church as the virgin bride of Christ. And so we'll, we'll get in, we'll talk about this more as we go through the book, but here's the main point behind this. The Jews in the synagogue of Satan were said not to be real Jews because being a child of God has nothing to do with your pedigree. It has nothing to do with your ethnicity. What it has to do with is your heart and whether or not you have repented and believed in Christ as your savior and follow him. The Jews in that synagogue of Satan felt like they had it all because they were Jews. They said, we're, we're God's people. And John and Paul and all the other apostles say, no, it doesn't have anything to do with your ethnicity. It has to do with whether or not you have Jesus. And here's the point that applies to us. We, oftentimes in our culture, we have a lot of people in the synagogue of Satan who have grown up in a Christian culture, who have attended church, who have done all the right things. They have the right pedigree. They have the right resume, but they don't have Christ. And the same fate that John gives the synagogue of Satan will fall on anyone who relies more on their spiritual or religious resume than they do on Christ. So without Jesus, we're nothing. It doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter who your parents are. Without Jesus, you are God's enemy, and you will be punished. So we see that the church in Philadelphia will ultimately be victorious over the synagogue of Satan. We're promised that in Christ. But then he moves on to giving us the true mark of a true or spiritual Israelite. What is the mark of, how do I know if I'm in the synagogue of Satan or if I'm actually a Jew, as John would call me? And in verse 10, in Revelation 3, we, we see the mark of a true believer. It says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So before we get into um, the main point, I do just want to say a lot of people will use Revelation 3.10 and the escape from whatever trial is coming. A lot of people will use that to support the idea of a secret rapture. The idea that uh, right before the seven-year tribulation, uh, all of the Christians on earth will just disappear, um, and then they'll come back with Jesus after the seven-year tribulation. That verse is used to support that idea a lot, but the problem with that is the word world, okay, the word that's used there that's translated into world does not mean 
the entire world. In fact, it's a word that uh, properly means the inhabited world. And it was commonly used within the Roman Empire to refer to the Roman Empire as, uh, as the world. Okay, so for a Roman, um, they were somewhat arrogant and, and they considered anything outside of the Roman Empire uninhabited. And so this word, when they would use it to refer to the entire inhabited world, what that meant was the entire Roman Empire. And so when he says that there's going to be this great trial throughout the world, what John is saying is there's going to be a great trial throughout the Roman Empire. It's a local, uh, it's a local trial. It's not talking about some global trial in the future. It's talking about a local trial within the Roman Empire. And for whatever reason... Jesus has decided because of the faithfulness of Philadelphia, of the church at Philadelphia, that they will, not, uh, they will not have to endure this specific trial. And, and, but what we see here is, and we need to understand this, just because Philadelphia is exempt from this coming trial does not mean that there's not gonna be more trials after that. It's not like Jesus said, you know what, you've had a really good couple years, I'm just going to give you the rest, you know, the next hundred years are off. It's just going to be great. Jesus doesn't promise that. He promises them that they will be exempt from this one specific trial. And we know that there's going to be more trials after that because Jesus gives them the command to hold fast to what you have so that no one takes your crown. So there's going to be more opportunities in the future for them to show their faith, for them to have to endure persecution. And so here's the point of all this. True believers, true Jews, always endure to the end. They're always faithful until the end. That doesn't mean we're perfect. That doesn't mean we never stumble. That doesn't mean that we don't go through bad times, what that means is our faith carries us through those while it's weakened at times, it never goes completely away. This is what's called the doctrine of uh, either preservation or perseverance of the saints. That means that what this means is throughout your entire, entire life, until the day you die, you live your life striving to serve Jesus. We do better at some times than others, but there's always something within you that's driving you forward, wanting to battle sin, wanting to uh, advance the kingdom of God, wanting to follow Christ faithfully. That never goes away for a true believer. But you see those terms that there's somewhat of an argument over which term is, is best suited for this doctrine because some people say well it's the perseverance of the saints because that means that we're required we are expected to continually strive and serve and follow after Christ but some people say well no that the better term is preservation of the saints because the Bible teaches us that God keeps his children that he uh, he's the one that causes us to endure he's the one that gives us the strength that carries us through uh, this process of sanctification. And the reality is both are appropriate and both terms are important because we do have a responsibility to persevere, but God is the one that preserves us and enables us to persevere. We have passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 24 through 27. We won't turn there, but that's Paul describing the Christian life as a race that we have to run. And he even says that he's concerned about himself being disqualified from it. And so he puts all of his effort into it. 
But we also have verses like Philippians 1.6 where Paul says that God will complete the good work that he has began in you. And, and so this process of sanctification that takes place uh, once we're saved in Christ and it goes until uh, this life ends, Christians never walk away from the faith. Well, what, what's the best term for that? Is it perseverance or is it preservation? Well, it's both because as Byron taught last week, there's a tension between man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. Yes, God is the one that carries us through, but we're also commanded time and time again in scripture to strive with everything that we have within us to follow Christ. And so there's a very real responsibility placed on our shoulders as believers, but there's also a very real trust and, 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 uh, and hope that we should cling to in Christ because he's the one that's carrying us through. And there's just a tension there that we have to learn to be comfortable with. The important thing is to understand that true believers endure. True believers don't walk away from the faith. True believers don't retire from Christian service. They run the race until it's over. They battle sin until the race is over. And so he gets into the last couple verses of this address to the church of Philadelphia. And he says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there's two things that John explains to us here. He's calling the church, he's calling Christ's bride, not only the temple but also the new Jerusalem. It says we're going to be made, he who conquers is going to be a pillar in the temple of God. He's going to have the new, the name of the new Jerusalem written on him. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that the church, Christians are being built up as the temple of God. Um, there's, there's a lot of obsession with um, a third temple being built in Jerusalem. There's a lot of people who expect that temple to be built as a prerequisite for the return of Christ. But the truth is, we are the new temple. The church is the new temple. In First uh, Peter chapter 2, just a few pages to the left of where you are, <clears throat> Peter describes this. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter tells us, you are the new temple. Christ is building this new temple with his church, or the temple is his church, rather. And not only are we the temple, but we're also the new Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21. Starting in verse 9, John says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So we understand that the church is the bride and the wife of the Lamb. But what does, when he says that he's, when the angel says he's going to show John the bride of the Lamb, what does he show him? In verse 10, 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So when the angel tells John that he's going to show him the bride of the lamb, he shows him the new Jerusalem. That's because the new Jerusalem is the church. And I know that may seem confusing, thinking that, well, we're the new temple, we're the new Jerusalem. These aren't geographical places. Here's the point of it. Here's the point of calling the church the new temple and the new Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem and the temple within it, they represent a lot of things, but here's, here's the main thing that they represent. They represent God's presence and pure and holy worship to him. So when the, John compares the church, when it refers to the church as the new temple and the new Jerusalem, what that means is there will be a day when the church, when the redeemed bride of Christ gets to experience God in his fullness. Right now, we don't experience God's fullness because we live in a broken world. We're broken, sinful people. We experience his presence, but we don't experience it to its fullness But there will be a day where we experience God's presence in its fullness and we will be made the acceptable, faithful servants that we were intended to be. That's our hope as believers. This this idea of being the temple, of being the new Jerusalem gives us hope because all of the things that we strive for in your life as you strive to serve Christ but you continually fall to sin, you continually get disappointed by your life circumstances, all of these things, one day all of that's going to be behind you and we will experience God in his fullness. We will be made the servants that we were designed and intended to be. That's our hope. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what Revelation points to. And when we trust in Jesus and repent of our sin, that is our promise. Christ promises to complete this. So as we close, there's, there's a lot to think about as a church and as individuals. <clears throat> and I know some things that, I know there's been some things that might be hard or new or confusing uh, with, that we discussed today, things like uh, there being two Israels or the idea of the temple or the idea of the new Jerusalem. There's things that might be hard and I've had to work through those things myself, but I wanna encourage you. Okay, there's a wonderful, powerful message within this book of Revelation and it's a message of hope, it's a message of promise, it's a message of what Christ has given to his people. And he's giving it to us saying, he who has an ear, let him hear. So we need to let Christ speak for himself. We need to let scripture speak for itself and give us this wonderful, amazing message of hope and of the promise that he's given us. And as a church, we need to trust the holder of the key of David and we need to strive to advance his kingdom. We need to strive to have an impact for the gospel. And as individuals, we need to endure. We need to strive and fight all the while trusting in God to see us through. And we all need to cling to the hope of eternity in perfect communion with our Savior. Would the deacons come up as I pray the deacons in the band I'm going to pray for us and
we're going to observe the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises that you've given us, uh, that for the, uh, the promise of an eternity with you. And God, I just pray that you would just embolden us as your children. You would give us strength and courage and uh, a desire to just serve you and to win the culture for you, to win the world for you. But God, as we do that, I also pray that you would just cause us to just cling to you, to fall at your feet, knowing that the power comes from you, the strength comes from you, you open the door. It's nothing that we do, it's nothing of our own power, but it's all you working through us, God. And I also pray that if these promises and this hope has not been made real to someone here this morning, that you would just work in their heart, that you would reveal the truth of the gospel to them, that you would remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. In Jesus' name. Amen.